and turn to Hebrews 13. We're going to start with verse number 14. I'll read through verse 19 and we'll see how far we get this evening. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, get not for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls. They must give an account that they may do it with joy, not with grief. For that is unprofitable. Pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience in all things, willing to live honestly. But I beseech you, rather, to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now, I think on the back table there may still be some extra copies of a new series we just started on Sunday. It dealt with the devil called an introduction. A lot of people want to know what scripture says about evil, about the enemy, about the devil as a real entity, about what happens when people get involved with witchcraft, sorcery, different manifestations of evil. This coming Sunday, I'll deal with those things, the manifestations, but I just want to mention that to you because if that's something you're interested in, you, you'll, you'll find there's a, a lot that the Bible says about the adversary, things that we need to know, because if we believe in God, we certainly have to believe there's an adversary, a devil, that's causing problems also. So let's have a word of prayer tonight. Father, we're grateful again to be able to look into the texts of the scripture. We pray that for a few moments that you give the folks ears to hear, give me the ability to speak with clarity. Father, give me a wise heart. Pray that the message of salvation would be apparent again. Help us to see these places where our Savior manifested himself through so many different types and shadows of the Old Testament. But God, more than anything else, help us to grow in grace and in knowledge. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen, Amen. We, we've made our way towards the end of this wonderful book, which teaches us so many things about how Christ is better than so many Old Testament figures, even spiritual figures, He's better than angels. We've learned that he has an excellent name. We spent time learning about the tabernacle, the pieces of furniture in that tabernacle, and we showed how Christ is represented in a variety of different ways through the images in those uh, pieces of furniture in the tabernacle. We spent a lot of time in the 11th chapter working on what faith looks like when it's portrayed in everyday living. And then we spent some time working in chapter 12 about what it means to run this race with patience, to keep our eyes focused on the Lord Jesus, knowing that each of us have our own individual race. Your pathway or your course has been paved by God from eternity. Yours is different than mine. There are no similarities. I should say there are similarities, but there's no exactitude when it comes to yours being just like mine. But we have these differences. Well, we worked on the idea of going outside of the city in order to bear the reproach of Christ, and we focused on what that means to handle the shame of being a Christian. 
be identified with Jesus. When you tell somebody you're a Christian, you're bearing the cross. And you've got to deal with everything that comes with that because the same spirit that animated people to crucify Jesus 2,000 years ago is the same spirit that's in this world right now that is at work animating people to persecute the church and to despise Christians today also. And of course, Jesus made it very plain. Don't be surprised if people do not like you. They don't like me. And so he said, if I'm going to be in you and you're going to live for me, then expect that same kind of dislike to be transferred to you. And this is what we have in the time frame that we're living now. So Hebrews 13, 13 told us to step outside of the city, bearing the reproach, going to Christ, knowing that he's the one who has suffered on our behalf. And then it says in verse 14, because here we have no continuing city. Well, that's the, the theme of what we're looking at tonight. We have an eternal city, one eternal city. And that is the place that all of us one day are going to reside. But verse 14 goes very well with Hebrews 11, verse number 10. It says, Of Abraham, for he looked for a city which have foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham is called our father of faith. He stepped out with a trust and confidence in God, without a map, without an iPad, without any recording, without a Bible, but simply with a word from God, he left his extended family, he left his native country, and he went to a place that God promised to him. He didn't know it was promised to him until he got there. God never told him anything about the land until he got there. And while he was there, the Lord said, look up and, and count the stars. And he says, a lot of them up there, God. He said, well, that's how many children, seed, you're going to have. Now, God told him that when he didn't even have any seed. So it was a, a prophecy amongst the stars for him. Well, he understood when he left the land of Iraq, the land of Ur in ancient times, and made his way towards the promised land, that he, he was literally looking for a city. He, he knew there was a place that God was taking him. He just didn't know what it was going to be like. And this is what we have when we come back over to chapter 13. The image of us as Christians is one that says we're pilgrims, strangers in this world. You, you were not born to live here forever. You were born to pass your time here in a seasonal thing, in a seasonal way. The same way spring, summer, fall, and winter come. That is exactly how we live the lives that we have. This is why we talk about our, our old age as our winter years. And that's simply because our lives are nothing but seasons. So we have uh, the first few years of a person's life. They come into this world. They they're going through school, they graduate from high school, they head off to college or whatever they're going to do. They get married, they go to the military, go to trade school, however it works out. So that first season of somebody's life, they're spending their time learning, growing. Second season of their life, we'll say 28, 29, 30, going on a little bit higher to about the mid-50s. They're spending their time acquiring property. People are having children, raising those children, trying to take values that You've learned and put them inside the ones that you're raising up. And by the time a person hits that third season of their life, they're looking towards retirement. 
putting things in order for that season of their life where now they get to be the grandparents or now they enter into that time frame of life where they're not having to get up and go to work every single day, eight hours a day, 40 or 50 hours a week. These are seasonal. People who are usually in that third season of their life are not looking to buy a new home, get a new mortgage. They're usually not trying to acquire the things that they tried to acquire when they were in their 20s and their 30s. And the reason for that is because they want to have some kind of a lifestyle that is somewhat enjoyable. So here's what the scripture says. Here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. So we're focused on eternity. You've got to look beyond your material possessions. The home that you live in right now, unless you bought it, the home that you live in right now, somebody else lived in that. And if you go around and talk to somebody in your community who's been there for 40 or 50 years, they can tell you who was there 20 years ago, and they can tell you who was there 60 years ago. Oh, you live in the old Williams house. Oh, remember that one? Yes, he, he, was, a, he was a mean old man. Yeah, that's that kind of a thing. People, people have a, a, a memory for those things. So as a, as a Christian then, God doesn't want us to become so bogged down with material possessions that we forget that one day we're all leaving here. Now, Jesus could come back and we all leave and go with him. But if he doesn't do that, he's still going to come for, for either of us, all, certainly all of us, if, if the Lord tarries. It could be for one of us tonight. It could be for one of us tomorrow morning or somebody a year from now. However it works out, he's going to receive all of us. There's no doubt about that. So this is why we live this life without shackles, knowing that we can leave it at, at any moment. Your car will be driven by somebody else. Mm -hmm. There will be someone else that will have your post office box. That, that's just how, how this is. And Paul is working to keep our mindset so focused that we can run this race looking unto Jesus. Remember, he's the one. We're running into his arms. We want to see him face to face. And we're, we're leaving this world here because everything about this world that we're living in now, it, it's filled with death, and sadness, and sorrow. I mean, that's not to say there's no joy, but sin is everywhere. That means there's darkness. The devil is busy doing many of the things that, that makes him happy. But the scripture says for us, we don't have a continuing city. So we're looking for that one that's going to one day descend from heaven that John described. Four square cities with streets paved with gold. Beautiful river flowing in that. That's a motivation for you to not allow yourself to become swamped with material things. That'll keep you from coveting after things that could actually destroy your relationship with God. Now, you've you probably heard people say that... Um, well, he or she is so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. You know, all they think about is heaven. They just, they're not interested in the things that go on on earth at all. But it's been my experience that most people who are very heavenly minded make the best Christians. Because they realize that there's no sense in, in, in fighting over things that are going to perish anyhow. But the one that's heavenly minded is the one who's, who's thinking about the fact, okay, I'm going to go spe spend all of eternity with the Lord. So the, 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 the days of man's years on this earth, according to Scripture, 70 to 80 years. 
if God gives them good strength. Some live longer, 70 to 80 years. So if, if that is all there is to this life, and the scripture says your life is nothing more than a vapor, a wisp of smoke, that means you're here today and you're gone tomorrow. You ought to be very careful with what you do with your time and how you spend your life. You can live your life in such a way that when you pass from this world, people will still remember you and talk about you. Or you can live your life like some people that when they pass from this world, their name is never mentioned again. People don't even remember who they are. So be effective. Do, do things that, that allow you to make memories that are a blessing. Because even though we don't have a continuing city here, a memory continues. A memory continues. Don't ever forget that. You're making memories with the grandkids. You're making memories with your spouses. You're making memories with your friends. You're making memories in your fellowship. Memories last forever and ever. Even when we get to heaven, we'll still be able to talk about Tuesday night Bible study. Yeah, we will. We will. So verse 15 then. By him, speaking of Jesus, let us offer the sacrifice of praise. It's because of him, through him, with him. By means of him, let us offer. So let, that's a word that has to do with permissibility. That's exhortation. Let, let's do this. The one thing that you can do is you can praise God. Well, then what is a sacrifice? A sacrifice in the Old Testament was offered to God. If it was an animal, the animal had to lose its life. If, if it was a grain offering or some kind of meal offering or something like that, it was given to the Lord, and this offering, dedicated to God, was acceptable to God because it came from a pure heart. A sacrifice was presented to the Lord, and if that animal didn't lose its life, then it wasn't a sacrifice. A life had to be sacrificed in order for God to find it acceptable. So when we talk about praising God, we're talking about praising God through pain. It's a sacrifice of praise when you feel obliged to worship God when you don't feel like worshiping God. Worship God when you're mad, you're angry, you're upset. It's a sacrifice of praise because now it's a death to self. You have to make up in your mind that I'm going to permit my will to be crucified so that I can say not my will but his will. See, I'm so angry right now. I just want to give somebody uh, a piece of my mind because I'm upset. But sacrifice of praise sets those feelings aside to be able to worship God because of how good he is. That's what we're talking about. A sacrifice of praise. And you give it to God. And you see there that it has that word continually. Now we learned in verse 14 we don't have a continuing city but we learn in verse 15 that your praise to God is supposed to be continually, unending. Praise God in the morning. Praise God throughout the day. Praise God when you're going to sleep at night. Be grateful to God for what he has given to you. And the scripture calls, calls that the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. The fruit of our lips. That, that means that you've got to consider yourself like a garden or like an orchard. And you are manifesting fruit. And, and the only way that an apple tree is going to bring forth apples 
that apple tree has to be healthy. You've got to go out of your way to make sure you maintain a good, strong Christian relationship with God because your worship reflects your strength. The scripture says in Nehemiah, the joy of the Lord is their strength. Most Christians, I'll say weak Christians, who pass through many uh, difficulties and, and, and oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, they're just falling apart, are people who do not spend a lot of time in praise. Just glorifying God. I mean, you can do this all by yourself. You don't need a choir. You don't need a praise team. You don't need a cassette tape, a CD, an 8-track. You don't need an iPad. You don't need a computer. You don't need somebody playing for you in the background. All you need is a grateful heart and a place to say, Father, I thank you, I honor you, I worship you. Fruit of your lips. Now that's interesting to me that God gives you the opportunity to create something that's pleasing to him. Because all of Genesis 1 and 2 is about him making stuff that's going to make us happy. So he made this world, seed reproduces after its own kind, rivers, mountains, trees, but now here, according to verse 15, you've been given the opportunity to create something for God that pleases him. That's praising his name, glorifying God. Well, if God gives you the ability to be a creator of something and to be a shaper of something that pleases him, why not do it? Well, let's, let's make this more practical then. What, what are we saying? I'm saying that when you gather for worship service. It doesn't matter to me if someone's singing a hymn, a chorus, some kind of contemporary song, or whether they're singing a cappella. I, I just think that when you worship God, you ought to do it out of a grateful heart. There are some people who worship God grudgingly. Well, it's time to sing hymns, so they just stand up. I can tell you, they're not creating anything that's pleasing God. I mean, that's a barren field there because they're, they're not even thinking about a song that says, count your many blessings, name them one by one. If you started thinking right now, if you started trying to count how many different ways the Lord has blessed you in your life when you were, when you were let's say, when you recognized that he was blessing you, or those times even when he was blessing you and you were ignorant of who he was. You start making those kind of uh, just real self-examination to see how God has blessed you. I promise you, you, you won't have to count how many cows are jumping over the moon at night. You, know, you, you, you have the blessing. And the, the scripture here says giving thanks to his name. So an attitude of gratitude is important. A grateful heart is important for a Christian. And then verse 16 goes on to say, do good and communicate. Don't, don't forget to do good to folks. And said, with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Well, verse 16 still goes with verse 17. Sacrifice of praise, and he's talking about doing good. Because if you're going to do good for people, you're going to have to sacrifice time and energy. It's going to be your time, your energy, maybe even your money, your food. And sometimes... There have been people who've gone, who've gone without themselves in order to make sure somebody else had something. Families that have gone without because they wanted to sacrifice in order to be a blessing to somebody else. And these are the kinds of things that pleases God because God realizes you're not selfish. 
You have crucified your will. You put yourself in second place in order to put God's will in first place and to be a blessing to other people. Now, you're supposed to be nice to everybody. Scripture says, bless those that curse you, pray for your enemies. And then the scripture says, do good unto all men, but especially those of the household of faith. So I I have to go out of my way. Even people that, that hate me and don't like me, I still have to be cordial and Christian. And then it says to everybody, so that includes everybody. But then he adds that part about the Christian. That means I'm going to treat everybody nice, but there's something special about a man or woman that has a covenant with God. I'm going to really go out of my way to be a blessing to them. Do good to all men, but especially those of the household of faith. Christians are people that we should always want to bless. I love years ago, back in 87, I think Lester Summerall was in Jerusalem and woke up in the middle of the night and couldn't sleep, and God began to deal with his heart, and God was, he said to the Lord, he said, it's, it's midnight. He said, I'm over here trying to sleep. You're wrestling with me in the middle of the night. And the Lord said, I know it's midnight. It's midnight in my church. And he said, I've got kids all over this world that are starving to death. And he said, I don't want my children to die praying the Lord's Prayer as they're starving to death. He said, I want you to do what you can to feed them. Well, he started an an entire ministry called the End Time Joseph Feed the Hungry program. He ended up buying uh, big ships, then a big C-130 Hercules airplane. Now, the only, he was the only ministry on, on, on planet Earth, uh, should say the only ministry in America to have a C-130 Hercules airplane. The only other people that had them were military people. A C-130 Hercules can probably accommodate a thousand people on it. That thing is huge. I flew on one when I went to Japan back in 1988. It's just a very big thing. But he, he would use that and his ships and go around the world and he would call up these big businesses, like uh, whether it was Wheaties and Nestle Crunch and all these people. He said, look, I'm taking a boat going over to Africa or I'm going over to Bosnia and Herzegovina. There are kids over there starving. I want several tons of food from you and I want it now. He'd just tell them pretty directly. And them leaders of those organizations would make available all of this stuff and send these containers over there and think of how many thousands People have lived because somebody did good. Did good. Now I've wondered sometime with 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 all of the extra corn that lay in the field at the end of harvest, you know, that, that very often that the animals get, what in the world would, would happen if, if if that little bit that was left, that that stuff was collected and then people, you know, started selling that to you know, to the at the uh scales and all that stuff and weighing that stuff out or collecting it and taking it to different places just so people around the world would be able to have a little bit of money for food. Think about that. There's a lot of things we always can do to do good to help people and that can even be a blessing on a local level, you see? So the scripture says, do good. Share. God is pleased with that. Then verse 17 goes with verse number 7, except it adds a different kind of twist to it. And since I 
made remarks on that last week. I'll just say that in verse 17, it's very plain that whoever is teaching the word of God and looking after your souls and ministering to you the word of God, they are going to have to give an account for what they do and what they teach. Every minister is going to give an account for how they have ministered to the Lord's sheep. And that's why James says everybody shouldn't desire to be a teacher because they shall receive the greater judgment. The teacher who is taking God's word and shaping people's lives by what the word says are going to receive a greater judgment because they're in a position of influence. That's the thing that's that's powerful. There are a lot of of roles in this world that, that, that are very influential. You take parents, quite naturally, from the time that baby gets into this world, got a mom and dad speaking to them. Teachers, they have a tremendous amount of influence on young people because they have them hour after hour. Same thing with with pastors and a host of other vocations too. But God is making it very plain. We should not take for granted. You can just get up and say whatever you want, do whatever you want and think, but you're not going to give an account for that. That's why the scripture says it's a very, very serious business. A man or woman says they feel called by God to do something, then it really needs to be a calling. It shouldn't be because mom and dad called them or because grandpa said, oh, you look like you'll make a good preacher. Well, grandpa may say people may look like a lot of good things, but that doesn't necessarily mean you need to be in the pulpit teaching people. But I've met many people in my life who I don't believe were ever called to the ministry, but got into the ministry for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes they wanted a second or third career. I had one preacher told me one time, I asked him, he was retired from, he was a, a crop insurance adjuster or something like that, and I asked this preacher one time, how in the world did you, did you ever become a pastor? He said, after dealing with the stress of all the farmers, he said, I wanted something that would be a lot more peaceful and wouldn't have a lot of stress. I said, why did you choose this? <laughs> why, why did you choose this? And then a few years, few years afterwards, when when them folks ran him out of town, I think he understood exactly <laughs> what, what 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 I meant there. Okay, so ver- verse seventeen says we're going to give an account. It says we should do it with joy. Think about that. To be a minister and be happy about what you're doing. Now you think about the preachers you've met and known in your lifetime. I guarantee you, you probably can think of a handful of them that preached and did not enjoy what they were doing. They didn't enjoy the congregation. They didn't enjoy uh, having to teach the folks about the Bible. But the scripture says it should be the kind of ministry that they perform without grief. It shouldn't be, oh, my goodness, I'm so tired of this flock. I don't know what to do with myself. (laughs) It shouldn't be that way. Uh, A minister should be happy to teach the word of God. I recall up in, in uh, a town one time where I was ministering, and we were talking about some Bible studies. So I was explaining to them about the Bible studies that, that we have praying here and Red Cloud and stuff like that. And I was talking about the different people and how different the Bible studies are, people different backgrounds, different church groups and all this kind of a thing. And so I said to this one person, I said, why don't you ask your pastor at your church to do a Bible study? Because surprisingly, at least to me, most churches in the heartland have one service a day and it's usually one service a week and it's usually an hour or so. So you don't have a midweek service. 
and, and the, the preachers are paid very well. And so this, this, this one minister, this one church, I think his salary package, I believe, in cash, he made about $65,000. And then the benefits that came along with it, that was another twenty, And then probably uh, retirement and all of that. So this man was doing very good for one hour service a, a, a week. And I said to one of the people, I said, well, you know who I'm talking about. I said, why don't you, I said, why don't you ask your pastor to do a Bible study? And just a midweek Bible study, maybe for the ladies or for the older people and all this kind of stuff. And, and she looked, she said, we asked. But he, he said to us, he said, look, he said, with a little bit of money that I'm making, he said, I can't be doing another service. I don't have time. It's going to interrupt gun smoke. See? It's going to interrupt Bonanza. And he's actually going to have to study rather than spending his time doing this and doing that. I, I can assure you, if, if you don't know one, I, I am certainly a pastor that enjoys what he does. Yeah. There, there, nothing gives me greater pleasure than to get up and minister and teach God's word to his people. See? And then to teach his word to people that don't know God. They can learn. It, it's never been a grief grief to me. And I think if it ever becomes like that, then it's better just to get out of the, the whole calling business of preaching the gospel. Because the last sentence of verse 17 says, for that's unprofitable for you. If you don't like the minister and the minister don't like you, it doesn't matter how much everybody says they're enjoying the fellowship. There's no fruit that can come out of the relationship. Because he's not going to put his heart into studying to minister something that's going to be a blessing to the people. And the people are not going to be able to receive because they're going to sit there the whole time. And they're going to be staring at him. And scowl is going to be on their face. And they're going to be shooting darts at him the whole time he's up there preaching. That happens too. But that's not the plan of God. Paul says in verse 18, pray for us. We trust that we have a good conscience in all things willing to live honestly. Minister should live honestly. Paul said in another location, provide things honest in the sight of all men. Shouldn't be liars. Shouldn't be deceivers. Shouldn't be trying to cheat people. This is why ministers need prayer. They want to have a good conscience in what they do. That means a minister should be able to put his head on his pillow at night knowing that he's living faithfully in accordance with what God has taught him. And he has faithfully given to the people what God has given to him. A good conscience. Now, your conscience is important. Your conscience is what accuses you when you do something wrong. And your conscience is what excuses you when you're doing what's right. And that's why the scripture says if, if your heart condemns you, know that God is greater. If something inside of you is making you feel bad because of something you said or something you did, you've got to realize there's a conscience inside there, and God knows how to bring conviction by the power of the Holy Spirit. But if, if, if it's not bothering you at all, then just keep going on. Yeah, keep going on. Don't let other people put you in bondage over things that God hasn't dealt with your heart about. Willing to live honestly with a good conscience. Paul does speak about a conscience being seared with a hot iron. I think that's in Timothy or Titus or one of those. Seared with a hot iron. What, what does that mean? The, the conscience is shaped and controlled by the information that a person puts inside. So a person can have a good conscience or a bad conscience. A person's conscience can be so deformed 
or depraved to the point that they have no ability to discern what's good or what's bad. And this is what happens when you hear these psychiatrists and psychologists talking about some killer, and they just say he just, he just has no feeling at all for what he's doing. See, like their conscience has changed. Now, a seared conscience, as Paul talks about, imagine the, the ranchers out here when those calves are born because they don't want those calves to get mixed up with somebody else's herd. They want to put their own stamp on them so they know they belong to them. So they take that hot poker, they put that brand on them. And in the place where that brand is made, when that calf gets bigger and that, that skin stretches and stretches and stretches, you, you'll notice that there's still no hair that's growing in that because there's something that that fire has done. And a person's conscience can become so affected by things in this world that they just see things in a perverse way. Yeah, they, they, I, I've met preachers like that. I mean, you go back and you think of those uh, situations in the 80s where some of those preachers were getting in trouble and that one uh, occasion where they had a ministry and they had a secretary in the ministry and the, the role of the, the, the secretary was to, to service the different evangelists that came to minister in that different place and, and when the whole thing was over and folks were going to jail and all that kind of a thing and they were asking her about that, she said, well, they, this is what they told me to do. See, you don't even allow your conscience anymore to even give instruction to your life because you allow somebody to manipulate and control who you are. I very often use Richard Pryor as an example. Richard Pryor was a man that was raised by his grandmother, who was a madam. So he was raised in a brothel. And if, if you have some idea of the, the circumstances of his life and the environment in which he came up in, you can understand why the kind of vulgar humor that made him happy didn't bother him at all if he was offending other people. See? That conscience was seared. And he held on to those things right on up to, to the end. You see? That, that's what we're talking about. A minister has to live close enough with God that that conscience can be shaped and changed by God because if he does something or says something that is wrong, he needs to be willing to make that right. Live honestly before people. Not taking advantage of folks. I, I'm, I'm not up here selling, selling mugs with a picture of me and Tiffany on it saying if you give $50 for it, you're going to be healed tomorrow morning. Not doing that at all. I, I don't have any life-size photos that you can take home and put over your bed that's going to bring you extra blessing like some people do. I, all the times I've been to Israel and time I lived in Israel, I never came home with any rocks or, or samples of the soil in order to sell in the different revival meetings so that I could receive extra money. I've never done that at all. Scripture said, freely you receive, freely you give. But verse 19, I beseech you rather to do this that I may be restored to you the sooner. So there's a separation here and Paul wants to be reconnected with them. And I think that any minister who's had relations with people, whether he met them one time and enjoyed their fellowship or whether he'd spent a lot of time with them, he wants to be reconnected with them. I'd be the same way if, if Tiffany and I had to pack up and, and move to another state or another city or went overseas and was gone for three months, six months, or six years. 
I mean, we, we'd be over there thinking about you folks. I wonder what so-and-so is doing now. You know, wonder what they're doing today. Wonder if Isla's making them waffles for somebody else. You know, that, that's the way this thing works out. Relationships are powerful, and this is how ministry operates, through relationships. You cannot function without relationships. Verse 20. So the God of peace that brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. The phrase God of peace, Paul uses several times in his writings. And that is what God is. He's a God of peace. He is. But... Notice verse 20, he emphasizes, even at the close of this letter, he emphasizes the resurrection. He believed God raised Jesus from the dead. Don't ever lose that. Somebody says to you, how, how in the world can you believe that God literally raised someone from the dead? Because Paul told me that. Hebrews 13, 20. Paul said, the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. And then gives him a title, the great shepherd of the sheep. Jesus is the one who shepherds our hearts and our lives. We're the sheep. Sheep need to be led. Sheep need a shepherd to take them to a pasture so that they can, they can feed and they can be healthy. And they can do all the things that sheep do. Otherwise, if, if sheep are ill, I can tell you what they're going to lose. They're going to lose that appetite. Most people, when they're sick, they lose their appetite. The loss of appetite is very often a significant indicator that somebody's Christian life is in trouble. They don't have a desire to read the Bible. They don't have a desire to fellowship. They don't have a desire to go to church. They've lost the desire to listen to gospel music. Their appetite for God is waning. You say, what, what could cause that? Any number of things. Just passing through the valley of the shadow of death sometimes. Various trials. Some people get tired of having to battle certain temptations over and over again. So they just finally just give up, throw their hands up, say, I'm tired of trying to live a disciplined Christian life and try to please God when everything in me wants to yield to sin. The scripture says he's the great shepherd of the sheep. What does the shepherd do with wayward sheep? Goes after them. Remember the parable? Said if one sheep went astray, the shepherd leave the 99 to go find the one. And you think of what all God went through to reach you. You're that one sheep to reach you. It may not have been the easiest journey for the shepherd, and it may have taken you over some rocky hills and around some mountains, but nevertheless, once the shepherd grabs you in his arm, I can tell you right now, he, he hold on, holds on tightly. He doesn't want to let you go. That's the great love that he has. Now, when it speaks of the, the blood of the everlasting covenant, that, that's something significant because that tells you this blood, this blood's power will work forever and ever. An everlasting covenant. Now, obviously, if Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, then God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, in unison, had to be in agreement that Galatians 4, 4 would come to pass. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman made under the law. 
So they obviously knew from the divine calendar exactly when Adam and Eve would sin, when Jesus Christ would need to come, and then when the second coming of the Lord is certainly going to take place. That was an agreement that, that was held by the Godhead in eternity. That agreement we call a covenant. A covenant. An eternal and everlasting covenant because it was made within the Godhead long before there ever was a Garden of Eden. It was not a plan B. This had always been in the mind of God. And he says in this prayer that God makes you perfect in every good work to do his will. God has a will that needs to be done on this earth. That's part of the Lord's prayer. If you're going to do God's will, you have to have some idea of what God's will is. If you're not sure what God's will is, how can you perform it? If the scripture says God's not willing that any should perish but all come to repentance, then the question is, should you or should you not pray for all people to be saved? If God's not willing that any perish, then it's God's will for people to become a Christian. So you should pray for people to become a Christian, even if people say to you, oh, don't waste your prayers on him. He or she is worthless. You can't agree with that. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so your prayers for that individual should be that they would come to know Jesus Christ, their Savior. And you pray that even if as you're praying that they start acting worse and worse and worse and worse. Scripture says God works in you that which is well pleasing in his sight. He sees what you do and what I do, nothing escapes his attention, which is why the scripture says we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account, an account for the deeds done in our body, whether good or bad. That's Second Corinthians. And Paul gives an exhortation here in verse 22. I encourage you or beseech you, brethren, Bear with or suffer the word of exhortation, for I've written a letter unto you in a few words. So he calls this letter a word of exhortation. He calls this word of exhortation a letter. We have it with chapters and verses. He didn't write it that way. But this is the way it's come down to us through people who started printing the Bible. And we should be quite grateful that they added chapters and verses because it makes it a whole lot easier to reference. And a whole lot easier to research. But when this was written in ancient times, it was just one long letter. It just went from one subject to the other. And some people might have thought, my goodness, why is Paul just rambling on <laughs> and on and on? you think he had other things to talk about. But he said, bear with this word of exhortation. Sometimes people have to say what they need to say in a long-winded way. Some things can't be said quickly. Sometimes you have to have long conversations with people about certain activities in their life, about their Christian life. Certain problems can't be fixed just like that. You remember the story of, of the, uh, the golden calf? Children of Israel came out of Egypt. Moses went up the top of the mountain 40 days. In the presence of the Lord, children of Israel waited for Moses to come down. And they waited so long, they said, look, we don't know where Moses is. He probably he might have ran off and left us out here to die. 
So we need somebody to protect us. We need a God. And so Aaron said, I've got an idea. You give me all your gold, I'll make you a God. So Aaron obviously still remembered how they did it back in Egypt. So he received all the gold nose rings and earrings and toe rings and lip rings and eyebrow rings and, and all of that. And he put it all together. He melted it down. He had some kind of a, a cast or something, I would assume. But he, he had a chisel and he fashioned a golden calf. This man made a big cow. Now, it had to be huge. It couldn't have been something small because if you're going to put it in the center of thousands of people, people that are way off in the distance have to be able to see this thing, I would assume. But whatever size it was, when he made it, he said, here's your God that brought you out of Egypt. And when the people were down there dancing and having a good time, and the scripture says they were taking their clothes off and dancing naked to their shame, God spoke to Moses and said, you probably need to get down that hill as quick as you can because these folks are in trouble and they're in trouble now. So Moses, he came running down with Joshua as quick as he could. He had the tablets of stone, and he looked down there and saw these men and women dancing around this golden calf and everybody having a good time. He took the Ten Commandments and just broke them in anger. And he went down there, and he basically drew a, a line in the sand after he snatched Aaron by the collar and he said, now I'm telling all you folks right now, here's the line in the sand. Everybody on God's side, you get over here, and everybody on that side over there, it's going to be bad for you if you stay there. And that man, Moses, went over there and took that golden calf and broke it, crushed it, and then mixed and mingled it with water and made the children of Israel drink it. Think about it. Now, now, here's the thing. <clears throat> Aaron, when he made that thing, Moses is gone 40 days. It took time to make that. It took time. He didn't, he didn't make that in five minutes. It took time for him to fashion that thing. And, and there are some problems that Christians and churches create for themselves that did not spring up overnight. They were working at that thing for a while, chiseling it out, one bad decision after another. And then with people like that, you can't give them an answer in five minutes. Some of them take a much longer word of exhortation. That's what this letter is about. Some of Paul's letters were short. Some of Paul's letters were long. Like I heard one wise man say, it takes you folks longer to teach these letters than it took for Paul to write. That's because some people have been working at situations for such a long time, you got to chisel, chisel. Let's finish it up. He said, I've written a letter unto you in a few words. How many of you ever wrote a letter that long and called it a few words? You write a letter to me that long, it will not be a few words. He said, know that our brother Timothy is free. He said at liberty, with whom if he should come shortly, I will see you. He said, if, he, if Timothy and I reconnect and we get back together and we're united again, we're coming to see you. So he says, salute or greet all of them that have the rule over you. Talking about the elders. And all the saints, they of Italy greet you. So according to this, this final statement here, somebody's in the nation of Italy writing this to the saints. Which Christians we don't know. 
Christians in Israel? Maybe. Christians throughout the Mediterranean region? Possibly. We don't know. But they of Italy greet you. And then he concludes very simply with grace be with you all. Grace being God's unmerited favor. Grace being God's power. His loving kindness. Grace being his ability to transform. God's grace be with you all. That's a lovely book. I'm telling you. That's a lovely book. It has a lot to say to us about being Christian. And I hope and pray that the 10 months that we've spent looking <laughs> at the book of Hebrews, I hope it brought you as much joy as it brought me. Oh, my goodness. I tell you, it seemed like every Bible said I learned something else. Wow. Learn something new as I'm teaching it. Learn something new as I'm researching it. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we love you. We thank you. We're grateful that we can come to the conclusion of another book. It's nice, Lord, to be so disciplined that we can tarry with one book so long and just really chew on it and allow it to minister to our hearts. Father, we don't know where we're going in the future, what direction we're going to take, but we know you're going to guide us so that whatever we do, it'll be edifying. We pray that your power and your anointing, Lord, would be with each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen.